Hello everybody, I hope you've had a good day so far. Welcome to the Osroads webinar on pavement design where we discuss key changes to the Guide to Pavement Technology Parts 2 and 4C. I'd like to thank you all for joining us. I'm the moderator in this session, my name is Eliz. If you are experiencing any technical issues, feel free to contact me through your chat box that you can see in your webinar sidebar. So just a bit about us. Osroads supports its member organisations, those listed here, to deliver an improved road transport network. Our collective approach delivers value for money, encourages shared knowledge and drives consistency for road users. We are proud to bring this webinar to you today. Here at Osroads, we use a program management approach where each program focuses on an operational area of the road system. This Osroads project falls under the assets program. And before we get started, I'd like to run through some housekeeping details. The presentation will run for approximately 40 minutes and we have 10 minutes for question time at the end. We are also recording today's session and we'll email you once it has been uploaded on the site shown. If you'd like a copy of the slides that we're using, you can download them from your webinar sidebar. So we believe an interactive webinar is a good webinar. So we encourage you to participate and ask any questions that you have. You can type your questions into the questions box at any stage of the presentation and we'll go through them during the allocated question time at the end. When submitting your questions, we ask say indicate the slide number your question relates to. So this webinar will provide an overview of the major changes to the design of heavy duty flexible pavements. Our presenter, who I'll introduce shortly, will outline key changes to the Guide to Payment Technology Parts 2 and 4C. You can download the guides from the Osteroids Publications website shown through the link. Staff from Osteroids member organisations can download PDF versions of the guides for free. This includes staff from all state and territory road agencies and local councils in Australia and New Zealand. Simply email osteroids at osteroids.com.au from your work email to request your login details. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our presenter. Dr. Michael Moffat is a National Technical Leader of Payments and Servicing at the Australian Road Research Board, also known as ARB. He has over 25 years of experience in research and development in a wide variety of areas, dealing with the design and analysis of payment structures and the characterization of payment materials. Hi, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Elise, it's a pleasure. So here we have the agenda and I'll now pass it on to Michael. Thank you, Elise. Um, we've got a very full agenda today and I apologise for the next 40 minutes, which is largely just going to be me talking at you very quickly. But I think you'll see very shortly that we've got some exciting changes um, in the guides to pavement technology and quite a lot of them. Um, today's exercise is really going to be highlighting the changes um, that are occurring in the latest editions of these documents. We won't be going back to providing an overview of all of the contents, just the changes. And trust me, that just the changes is going to take all of today's session. I'll start with a very brief uh, project background and introduction, and then spend the majority of the time talking about the Guide to Pavement Technology Part 2, the Pavement Structural Design section, um, where we have a list of changes, uh, significant ones, the consideration of lime-stabilised subgrades as providing structural support, uh, revised cemented materials characterisation, lean mix concrete characterisation and asphalt characterisation, and then get into the meat and potatoes of a, of a new approach um, for characterising design traffic and in the mechanistic empirical bound material space, uh, the use of what we're calling the axle strain method for designing uh, heavy duty flexible pavements. I'll spend a little bit of time on part 4C of the Guide to Pavement Technology, which is materials for concrete road pavements. Won't spend much, one slide in fact. The changes there are relatively minor. The document was updated to keep it current, uh, but not much has actually changed in terms of the, the nitty gritty. And then we'll open it up for questions and answers. I would encourage you though, as Elise has said, please type in your questions as we are going throughout the webinar today. And if you could make particular reference to a slide number to go back to, um, if that's important, then uh, that, that'll help us uh, move things along when we get to that Q&A section. Um, so, some project background and, and introduction. Well, the, the structural pavement design component of the pavement design series, or the Guide to Pavement Technology series, 
dates way back to 1979 when Austroads under its former name of NASRA, the National Australian Association of State Road Authorities, released the Interim Guide to Pavement Thickness Design. And over the intervening years, various editions of that document, which was once standalone, have been released. Um, by the time we got to 1992, I became involved in it, albeit just as a proofreader back in those days. Um, over the years, the document has changed a bit from being a guide more to a manual. Um, it still has characteristics of both, uh, but I think it's fair to say in today's environment, the 2012 edition, the last one, and the new 2017 are very much the focus of contractual type uh, processes, and so it's in many ways not so much guide as prescriptive. Um, still retain some elements of guidance as you'll see as we go through. Uh, the 2017 edition um, is out. It was a very early Christmas present for us all, um, and I hope you've all read it because it's top staff. Um, I had the pleasure of putting the final edit of this document together. So in 1992, I was proofreading, and any typo was my fault for not spotting it. In 2017, any typo is my fault for mistyping it. Um, but it's been a pleasure putting it together. However, it would be a great injustice to say that the guide just exists in isolation. The 2017 guide represents the culmination of years of research development work that's been conducted under the Austroads banner. Um, huge amount of work, almost all exclusively conducted with a view to it being incorporated into the guide um, at some stage into the future. So very little of the, the Austroads work um, in the pavement space has been sit on the shelf and dusting type stuff and gathering dust. It's all been with a focus to ending up in, in this document, at least in the pavement design space. And there is but a smattering of the prime reports um, that have led to this 2017 edition of the guide, quite a few. Um, and I should say, all of the relevant technical details that underline changes in the, the 2017 guide are referenced in the guide so that you can then go back to them, log onto the Austroads website where all research and technical reports are available in PDF form free of charge for you to download and immerse yourself in the background technology that, that's led to the changes. Um, the guide, putting it together, not doing the research work, but just putting it together came down to a project team um, from the Austroads management side, Andrew Papacostas uh, from VicRoads, very well experienced um, operator oversaw the project management side. Um, myself at, at the Australian Road Research Board and Jeff Jamison, a name probably not unfamiliar to you as well, uh, were the key people pulling the guide together based on all of that research work conducted by ourselves and, and by others. It's then gone through a fairly extensive review team uh, exercise. The first review team was the Austroads Pavement Structures Working Group um, that then reported up to the Austroads Pavements Task Force. So it's, it's had the eye run over it by um, some of the top pavement designers and material characterization experts in the land. Um, let's get into what is different. Well, as I said, the primary focus of today is gonna to be part two, and the primary focus of the updates was in the flexible pavement space, where we talk about the characterization of lime sub stabilized subgrades and how we can consider their structural support in our pavements the characterization of cemented materials, lean mix, concrete and asphalt, new design traffic, that new design traffic characterization and the axle strain method effectively remove the concept of standard axle repetitions or SARS from the guide, something that's been there since 2004 from recollection. Um, there have been some minor changes in chapter nine of the document dealing with rigid pavements. And those changes are largely limited to updating some of the joint detailing diagrams to bring them up to currency with uh, best practice across the country. So, steaming right ahead, the lime stabilized subgrades component. The 2012 version of the document and its predecessors uh, did not consider lime stabilized subgrades to have any structural support that could be considered in the design process. Um, that's a bit of a shortcoming because we do know that that um, mixing lime with some clay materials um, can provide uh, quite a stiff material and that that stiffness should be or could be um, considered in the flexible pavement design process. So in 2013, one of those um, underlying research projects was conducted looking at uh, different methods used around the world and around the country 
um, to consider the structural capacity of um, or contribution from lime stabilised subgrades. And that document made a couple of recommendations which we have incorporated into part two. And we are considering the um, support provided by lime stabilised subgrades in both the empirical design process for designing underbound granular pavements within bituminous surfacings, and also how we could consider that structural support in our mechanistic empirical process where we turn on a response to load model like Circle and calculate strains and the like. The approach adopted um, in 2017 edition of the guide, we are using uh, two methods that were documented in another part of the guide to pavement technology, uh, part 4D, stabilised materials. There are two methods there for determining the amount of lime that you would need to stabilise a subgrade, method A and method B. The key distinction between them being method A has a, a requirement for your, your um, material to meet a certain unconfined compressive strength. It's, it's a method used largely in Queensland. And method B, which does not have that unconfined compressive strength requirement and um, relies just on a CBR test for the, for the structural test. So that's the method that we've adopted in part two, is method B. And we are considering that the lime stabilised subgrade is only considered to have structural capacity if the lime provides long-term strength rather than just short-term strength, that the lime content meets the lime demand test, which is a, a simple test where essentially you work out the amount of lime needed to take your material to a, to a pH of 12.4, um, and you must meet a minimum CBR of, of 60%. Um, what we have done in part two is consider materials that meet those requirements to be equivalent to a selected subgrade material or a selected fill material. So we're allowing a maximum modulus for this clay, uh, lime stabilised clay of 150 megapascals, similar to uh, the maximum modulus that you would allow for a selected material. And in and in essence, in the mechanistic empirical process, we then consider that lime stabilised subgrade to be a selected material. We would sublayer it in the same way we would sublayer a material for a selected material and calculate a maximum compressive a vertical strain on the top of it and put that in our, our strain criteria for performance assessment. Um, and you can also use it in the um, empirical design process on the design chart. We have included in the appendixes, or one of the appendix of the guide, an example of using that empirical design chart where you are considering qualities of, or different qualities of material in different layers in your pavement, including a lime stabilised subgrade. Um, and it's a fairly simple process uh, that many are familiar with, but, but some not. So there's a worked example to, to make that clear in the back of the guide. Uh, the cemented materials changes are very, very significant and I think one of the most exciting changes actually because we're opening up the world to infinite, infinite possibilities as the marketers would say. Um, in the 2012 edition of the guide, the design modulus for cemented materials, and when I say cemented materials, I'm retaining the same terminology we've used in the past. These are materials with you know, three, four percent type of cement where we are developing um, considerable tensile um, strength in the materials. The 2012 definition of the design modulus was an estimate of the in situ flexural modulus in the field, in situ, after 28 days of curing in the roadbed. And it's obviously an estimate because you have yet to build the road, so you can't measure it, but it's an estimate of what it's going to be. And the 2012 guide um, provided two means for estimating that design modulus. One was based on conducting laboratory unconfined compressive strength tests, UCS tests, and the other was having a guess, was using presumptive values. Um, in the 2017 edition of the guide, we're retaining that estimate of the in situ modulus concept, but instead of it being 28 days, it's now 90 days during in the roadbed, which is a direct reflection of um, the desirable use of slow setting binders in the field and a 28 day flexural strength is not really giving you an indication of the strength that these slower setting binders will achieve in the long run. Um, by the time you get to a 90 days worth of curing, you're pretty much reaching um, the material's true capacity. 
also significantly in the guide, whilst we're retaining the estimation using unconfined compressive strength tests and presumptive values, we've added um, two, well, we've added the direct measurement of material. A lot of research work was conducted around 2008, 2009, developing test processes in the laboratory using flexural beams, um, loading them in a four-point apparatus, slightly bigger than the, than the test equipment you would use for asphalt testing, um, and directly measuring the modulus in the laboratory for a specific mix. Um, more recent work has worked out how to tie that laboratory modulus to a field modulus value, reflecting the wider range of material quality that you would get just through the nature of the construction process and the difference between handling of the materials. In the lab, you tend to be a lot more gentle, and well, at least in our lab, um, a lot more gentle with your materials <laughs> than, than may occur in a construction job. So what we've done is develop a, a fact-based laboratory to field adjustment factor, comparing field mixes of material, uh, laboratory mixes of material and their design modulus measured in the lab to what you get in the field, um, same materials, but being constructed full scale and conducting um, both beam tests from those materials and also back calculation of the modulus of the material. So we've got a new design method for modulus. And fatigue performance, something similar. The 2012 edition of the guide, we had a presumptive fatigue relationship that was that related the number of repetitions of allowable loading to the strain level that was being applied by our load to the modulus of the material and to a, a designer selected level of project reliability that they wish to achieve. So the only difference between different materials in the fatigue relationship would have been the modulus that was assigned to them. Two materials, two potentially very different materials having exactly the same flexural modulus were considered in that relationship to have exactly the same fatigue potential. And if you were to plot that up as a chart, as we've done here, that's essentially what we're saying, that for a given modulus, there's a given tolerable strain level, and if you had a whole range of different materials, the only way you would pick them as being different to each other was on design modulus. Well, we conducted a considerable, I mean a huge amount of tests. The figure on the left plots essentially what the figure on the right is supposed to be an idolization of. Every dot there, every red square or, or black bluey diamond represents the mean of a range of specimens of given materials being tested. And you can see that there is not a nice clean line like shown on the right, linking flexural modulus to tolerable strain. There's something going on affecting the fatigue performance of these different materials that is beyond just flexural modulus. Turns out, Flexural strength is a very good way of considering that difference. Chart on the right shows for the same materials a predicted versus observed tolerable strain. So essentially what we measured from fatigue testing in the lab compared to what we would predict from other properties and those other properties being the flexural strength of the material and the design modulus. And it's a fair thing to say that it is the flexural strength that is by far the dominant factor in determining the fatigue life, with modulus playing a role, but very much a second fiddle role. So if you haven't measured your flexural strength of the material, um, you really don't even have three quarters of the story. So in order to reflect that in the 2017 guide, the way fatigue performance is considered there, we've got rid of the old presumptive fatigue relationship and put in a general form that says the allowable number of repetitions of a strain level n is equal to the project reliability factor times a fatigue constant divided by the strain that's applied by your load all to the 12th power. We have three methods for determining what that fatigue constant K is. The first and by far the most preferred is by doing laboratory testing of your material mix, characterizing the material in fatigue tests. So constructing beams in the laboratory and putting them through hundreds of thousands of loading cycles in a fatigue test. We have test methods developed to do that. They are referenced in the guide. And a 
important part of that process is again a laboratory to field shift factor to take the fatigue performance and essentially downgrade it to what is more realistically going to be achieved in the field. And that was, again was conducted um, similar way to uh, described with the, the flexural modulus by comparing accelerated loading test results with the same material characterized in the lab. Um, quite a bit of work done there. Our second method, which is not as good as the, the Rolls-Royce of the first, is to estimate the um, fatigue characteristic, the fatigue um, constant K from test results of measured flexural strength and flexural modulus in laboratory tests, not the full fatigue test, but quicker tests um, conducted measuring the strength and modulus. We, from, from all of those material results that I showed earlier, we were able to develop a regression equation um, that gives us a fair amount of confidence in estimating K, the constant, as a function of flexural strength and flexural modulus. Um, we've also included a laboratory to field um, factor there. That method has isn't as good as the first because you're using a regression equation and there are some boundaries placed around its use that pretty much reflect the range of materials that we used to develop that relationship. So if you're coming up with a new material that's well outside the characteristics of that data set, then you really can't use the estimation method. You would need to, and you ought to in any case, go to the first method, direct measurement. We have got a third method in there, presumptive values is the scientific name. Guess is probably what I would call it. And as a result of it really being a guess, because you have not measured the flexural strength of the material, which we see as being the key parameter, um, we're not able to provide any levels of project reliability consideration in that. It, it's very difficult to be specific about different levels of reliability when essentially you're just taking a punt on the properties of materials. The exciting thing about that component um, of work is you can take a material that you don't know the field's performance of, a material that your imagination is just conceived of, a little bit of crushed brick, a little bit of quarry, quarry scalpings, a bit of pixie dust or whatever, and manufacture materials, test them in a laboratory and environment, and as a result of that laboratory environment, have a understanding of how that material will perform and the degree of confidence that a pavement designer needs to consider it in a pavement design process. I think it's actually really exciting, really. Uh, secondly to that, it, Lean Mix Concrete, we've made some, some relatively minor changes, but it's worth going over. In the 2012 edition of the guide, uh, Lean Mix Concrete was really just a type of cemented material, and it fell into that same fatigue relationship that we used. Essentially, you put a big modulus value in, um, re reflecting the big modulus you get out of a cemented material, and it was the same as any other. In the 2017 guide, we've taken the opportunity to to pull cement, to pull lean mix concrete out and consider it as a separate material type for flexible pavements. Um, and the design method that we've got in there is essentially unchanged in, in principle from the previous one. We are using a presumptive values. Presumptive values in this context aren't necessarily a bad thing, and I don't use the word guess here quite so much. Um, a lean mix concrete material is following a fairly tight specification. It's uh, uh, an engineered material uh, constructed and fabricated in a controlled plant environment. Um, I think it's reasonable um, for people following a specification to expect reasonably tight tolerances on the performance and characteristics of those materials. So presumptive isn't necessarily an evil word there. In the actual characterization space, we're continuing this trend of direct measurement of materials. In the 2012 edition of the guide, the um, design modulus was essentially an, an estimate again, um, based either on resilient modulus that was measured using an indirect tensile test in the lab, and then adjusted to the weighted mean annual pavement temperature that you expected the pavement to operate at and the rate of loading or traffic speed that the pavement would be subjected to. If you took a resilient modulus, a test result, adjusted it to in-service temperature and loading and out popped design modulus. Uh, the alternate method provided in 2012 was an estimation of the modulus from fundamental bitumen properties using the shell nomographs in the guide or some equation form that had been fitted to them 
or the old shell bands program if you could get it to run on a modern computer. But the trick there being DOSBox, guys. DOSBox will get it going. Um, and again, you adjust those uh, estimated asphalt uh, modulus to the in-service temperature and rate of loading. In 2017, we've retained both those methods, but we have added some extra text to clarify to the reader that both of those methods do yield a flexural modulus. It may seem odd, but the first one, which is based on an indirect tensile test, does get converted into a flexural modulus, and it gets converted in the rate of loading adjustment. The way you do the rate of just loading adjustment incorporates a, a factor to essentially convert that indirect tensile test into a flexural one. So we've retained both those pre-existing methods for estimating flexural moduli. And we've added the third one, which is similar to, we talked, to what we talked about in cemented materials, a direct measurement of flexural modulus of your mix. You can, we've got, so that now gives us four, and I'll show you why four in a minute, four different methods of coming up with flexural modulus. The first is to do that direct measurement of your asphalt mix at the in-service speed and at the appropriate weighted mean annual pavement temperature. So assess it in the conditions that you are going to design the materials used for. The second um, is actually to interpolate the results from a range of flexural modulus values that were conducted over a wide range of speed and temperatures. So instead of just testing one asphalt mix at one temperature and one uh, speed, you could conduct a much larger set of tests on that one mix, wider range of speed or frequencies, and a wider range of temperatures. And mathematically, you can formulate what is called a master curve, a single equation that's got a lot of terms in it, but a single equation that allows you to interpolate from those test results um, any specific temperature and um, rate of loading, traffic speed um, values. So you can interpolate those. Those two are both direct measurement methods. The first is measuring at the right conditions. The second is interpolating within a, a much broader set of data. We're retaining the two earlier versions used, the two earlier methods used in the 2012 guide, the direct measurement using the indirect tensile test and converting it to flexural modulus via the rate of loading. Um, and we're retaining the shell nomographs as used in the 2012 guide. How much longer we, how many more editions of the guide the shell nomographs remain in um, remains to be seen, but I'd like to think in time we could probably drop them and go back to more fundamental measures. In the 2012 um, guide, we used uh, this fatigue performance relationship uh, for estimating the fatigue performance of an asphalt mix. It's essentially based around the old shell relationship. In the Austroads context, we've added a reliability factor out the front where you can um, essentially take a mean relationship and adjust it to different um, levels of project reliability. What was confusing uh, many people uh, in the past is what that reliability factor also included. And um, what it also included was a laboratory to field shift factor. As I spoke of when we were talking about cemented materials, the, the way a material performs in the laboratory is not going to be the same as the way that material, exactly the same material, performs in the field. There is going to be um, some degree of shift. In the determination of that reliability factor um, in the 2012 guide, we had included a lab to field shift factor as well as the desired project reliability concepts. 2017, we've split that reliability factor into two separate factors. One a little confusingly, maybe still called a reliability factor, and the other being a shift factor. And we've put in a presumptive shift factor of six for a materials. If you know better, go for it, put in what you know better at. But if you don't know better, it's safe to assume a value of six for that shift factor. And then for different levels of project reliability, you can feed in your reliability factor. We've also added a 50% project reliability factor, which not surprisingly comes out as one, um, if you want to turn that fatigue relationship into a mean relationship, so a, a relationship that would go through the average of your data set rather than a 80, 80 percentile or a 97.5 percentile of your data. 
Um, we've also provided additional guidance in the document on how you could use laboratory measured fatigue performance in the design process. Um, so if you've characterised the fatigue performance of, of an asphalt mix, how you may go about using that in design. Word of caution though, that does require an understanding of the relationship between lab and field performance. So you've got to have a good idea of whether or not that presumptive value of six or not is appropriate for that material or not. Um, the other thing that we've added in the guide that's pretty significant in my view at least, um, is that we've put a limit on design traffic um, as an interim way of reflecting sort of the endurance limit concept or perpetual pavement concept. Um, the terms have very specific meanings, so I'm using them now rather loosely, but the, the view that beyond a certain amount of asphalt material placed in a pavement, um, you're not getting any additional performance by placing more material. Um, what The way we've reflected that um, in the guide as an interim measure, whilst we think more fundamental research needs to be done to refine it, but as an interim measure, we've essentially put in a traffic limit cap. If your design traffic limit expressed in, in ESAs um, is greater than a certain threshold value, which depends on temperature, uh, we are saying do not consider any traffic level higher than this. If you were to do so, you will be placing additional asphalt thickness that is not necessary. So essentially, if you've designed traffic, if you're sitting um, in in Sydney near around 26 degrees Celsius, and you've got three by 10 to the eight ESAs as your design traffic, we're saying for the purposes of asphalt thickness determination using the asphalt fatigue function, don't use three by 10 to the eight as your design traffic. Put, use the the ceiling of two by 10 to the eight, which you see in that table there. Um, an interim measure, we, we want more work to be done to come up with a better view of how rest periods and temperature and other things truly affect fatigue performance in an Australian context where we have much higher loading at much higher temperatures than a lot of the world. Um, but we haven't got the confidence yet to say, here's the definitive measure, but here's an interim one to stop crazy designs as we go whilst we're developing it. I would remind you to be belting your questions into um, the webinar box here. And again, if you could reference them back to a slide number if that's necessary, that'll help us in the Q&A um, to get to those slides so that everyone can see the, the context of the question. We will get to questions and I will stop talking shortly, I promise. Design traffic. Um, in 2017, we've added a capacity check. Um, we have added a check to make sure that um, this sort of blind application of, of growth rates to high initial traffic levels um, doesn't end up yielding over long periods of time. So if you've got a high initial traffic, like an 8% growth rate um, and a 40 year design period, that we don't end up with traffic levels that are so high that in fact you couldn't fit them on the road. Um, so we've put in a, a check for the capacity to make sure that the design lane um, doesn't have a design traffic being used that exceeds its ability to actually carry traffic. We've adopted a very simple approach where we define capacity as being at the time where the flows that are down the road have reached what uh, the traffic designers would call saturation level, which is about 2,300 um, passenger car equivalent vehicles per uh, hour. And we're assuming that capacity is reached when the road is saturated 24 hours a day. So a fairly conservative approach. Um, essentially, once your, if your design traffic is exceeding that, then you really should be asking yourself seriously whether or not um, that's really what the road's going to be seeing over its long period of time. It may be, but we're asking you to at least think about it rather than just blindly go ahead. Um, so I'd refer to that section of the guide for more information, except I will say there's a typo in there, so an errata will be coming out fairly shortly um, that corrects it, so maybe not do a design on it just yet. Right, this is the biggie. Um, for the mechanistic empirical design of flexible pavements with bound materials, and that means when we are looking at asphalt and cemented materials, um, and not just you know, granular materials, when we are looking at the fatigue performance of materials, and we have made some significant 
changes in the 2017 guide based on quite a lot of work. And we, in general, call this the axle strain method um, because we needed a label and we're not that imaginative. In the 2012 um, edition of the guide, we didn't have an, an, ax an axle strain method. We just characterised our traffic spectrum um, by calculating strains under an 80 kilonewton standard axle load. We calculated our allowable traffic under an 80 kilonewton standard axle load. And therefore, we converted our design traffic in terms of repetitions of a standard axle. And that's where we got the concept of SARS, S-A-R, standard axle repetition. Our roads aren't all subjected to single axles with dual tyres, 750 kilopascal tyre pressure of a very specific geometry loaded with an 80 kilonewton load. We have single axles and tandem axles and triaxles and quads. We have single tyres and dual tyres. And we have various different load levels um, as well. We have an entire spectrum of load levels that we have in our design process. So in the 2012 version of the guide, we took that whole spectrum of design levels and we converted it into an equivalent number of standard axle repetitions. SARS, as I said. From the strains, we calculated the allowable loading in terms of standard axle repetitions and we expressed our design traffic in standard axle repetitions and calculated the damage. The way we did the, the way we determined those equivalent standard axle repetitions um, in the 2012 edition of the guide was we had this concept of standard group loads. Loads on different axle groups that were considered to cause the same damage as each other. So if we look at the, the table on the lower left, single axle dual tyres loaded to 80 kilonewton was considered to cause the same amount of damage as a tandem axle with dual tyres loaded to 135 kilonewtons. They're the standard group loads to determine the number of equivalent standard axle repetitions that a given load group and load level would have. We would, put, we would divide the load for the group by the standard load, raise it to the load damage exponent power of 5, 12 or 7, depending on which material we were considering. And that's where we got our SARS, SARS 5, 12 and 7. Problem with that is that the standard loads, standard loads used to determine um, those SARS um, were based on equal deflection concepts. So if, if a pavement was considered to deflect the same under different load groups, it was considered to be damaged the same by different load groups which is interesting because it means the, it was actually the maximum deflection. So a single axle passing over a pavement causing a deflection of, oh, I don't know, 0.2 millimetres for argument's sake, um, was considered to cause the same amount of damage as a tandem axle passing over that caused a maximum deflection of 0.2 millimetres as well, regardless of the fact that the, standard axle, the, the tandem axle would have achieved that level of 0.2 millimetres twice, once for each axle. So it's just the maximum peak, not the number of axles. It's a bit odd. The other shortcoming of the method is that our design method doesn't equate damage to, to deflections at all. It equates it to damage, to strains, sorry. All of our performance models use strains as our way of characterising um, the load on the structure, not deflection. So we had a disconnect between the response to load models that we used in a circle and the like and our performance relationships disconnect between that and the way we considered um, the spectrum of traffic loads to be equivalent to each other. And then the final shortcoming, and a very significant one, is those standard loads that we used, and I showed you earlier, are independent of structure, which is patently not the case, because we do know that strains do vary within a pavement structure. Um, so the shortcoming is, Regardless of what your pavement structure, an 80 kilonewton single axle dual tyre was considered to be the same as a 135 kilonewton tandem axle dual tyre. Whereas you won't get equivalent strains for those axle groups um, being the same for all pavement structures. You may for one structure, but you change the structure slightly and that equivalent strain will just disappear. So the 2017 method is a pretty radical um, departure from that, wherein we are changing the definition of design traffic essentially to be the expected number of repetitions for each axle load and each axle group type. 
So we're essentially saying you can't hide from assuming a traffic load distribution now. You have to consciously say, this is the distribution, the way my loads and axle groups are distributed, and I am going to calculate the expected number of repetitions for each and every one of those combinations of group type and load level. Our allowable loading in terms of fatigue damage is going to be calculated for each axle group type and load level as well. And our fatigue damage is essentially the ratio of those two, dividing the expected repetitions by the allowable repetitions. So calculating the damage for each and every single cell in that traffic load spectrum. And for those of you who are familiar with doing concrete pavement design using the Austroads Pavement Design Guide method, this would be a very familiar concept to you because it's exactly what we do for rigid pavement design. We assess um, for two modes of failure, fatigue analysis and erosion analysis, but we assess um, the expected, well, you determine the expected repetitions of each load group type and level um, in our design traffic spectrum, and we assess the allowable repetitions for each of those levels, determine the percentage damage is the ratio of those two, sum those damages. If they're less than 100%, everything's awesome. If they're more than 100%, it means our candidate structure is not up to the task. We've made some simplifications, however, in the, in the process in 2017, and we've assessed these simplifications and the, the impacts of them. They essentially are twofold. We are assuming that axles act in isolation to each other, so no superpositioning occurring. Um, there's a large discussion in an underlying technical document that's referenced in the guide that can go into the, the whys and wherefores of that assumption, but we're assuming that they act in isolation to each other. And additionally, we're assuming that strains are linearly proportional to load. Those two assumptions enable us to get away with only needing to conduct two response to load calculations, two circle calcs, from which we can reconstitute the strain levels under different load type, load levels. And because we're assuming that axles act in isolation to each other, we can sum those up to determine the strains that would occur under each axle within a multiple axle group. The two response to load calculations that we've got in the guide is the 80 kilonewton single axle dual tyre standard axle that we're familiar with, to which we've added a single axle with single tyre, a 53 kilonewton load. Um, picked Y53, well, because that was the standard load of old, and we are keeping those standard loads when we're looking at subgrade performance. Um, so the 53 kilonewton single axle single tyres with a slightly higher tyre pressure um, to reflect the fact that these single axles tend to run at slightly higher tyre pressures. Um, and the geometry of the axles fairly standardised and matches Austroads vehicle turning plates and general manufacturers catalogues as well. So from those two response to load calculations, um, you can predict the strain under each isolated axle using the fatigue relationship shown on screen, which I showed you earlier, but it's got one extra term, you can determine the number of allower repetitions of a group of axles by considering the number of axles in the group. So the allowable repetitions of an axle group, in this case a tandem, is equal to one divided by N, the number of axles in the group, in this case two, times our shift factor divided by reliability factor, and then the rest of the shell equation with a strain value in the denominator of that relationship being the strain developed under one axle within that group. So the strain at the group load level divided by the number of axles in the group. From that, we can calculate the allowable repetitions, divide the ratio of that with the expected repetitions, work out the damage and sum it. The net result of all of that is we have removed the concept of standard axle repetitions. In the empirical design chart, that remains unchanged. The unit of damage there is ESAs. For mechanistic empirical method, when we're considering asphalt, cemented materials, and lean mix concrete, our, our concept, our design traffic is essentially the heavy vehicle axle groups and the traffic load distribution. It's the way we characterize it. For permanent deformation, mechanistic empirical. We would have previously had SARS-7 in there. Um, we've shifted that to ESAs. That we wanted to get rid of SARS. That was the last SARS in the, in the place. We weren't able to take um, that axle strain method through in the permanent defamation, defamation space. We didn't have enough data 
to do that confidently. So we've retained the old concept of a standard axle response, but we have, instead of using SARS-7 as our damage unit, we've used ESAs, which has resulted in a minor change to the numerator of that equation. And of course, the whole unit is N ESAs, number of equivalent standard axles, rather than number of SARS-7 repetitions. So that's what's going on in the flexible space. Quite a substantial change. Thankfully for you, very large worked example in the tail of the guide um, to describe it. The, the effect of all of that, for heavy duty asphalt pavements, the effect of all of that is a considerable reduction in asphalt thickness at the higher traffic load levels. So if we take this generic pavement structure shown on the left of the screen, work out the allowable repetitions um, well, the, the required asphalt thickness, sorry, for different levels of traffic. We can see at the low traffic levels, 10 to the five, not much difference. The red line on top of that chart is the 2012 thickness, and the blue line underneath is the 2017 thickness requirement. So if we go up to say 10 by, oh, one by 10 to the eight allowable ESAs, a required thickness difference there is what, somewhere between 25 and 30 millimeters of reduced material. Quite a substantial reduction um, in material cost. Don't have to buy as much asphalt. And if you're canny about it, you don't necessarily, you should, you, you should also be able to reduce your construction costs because you're probably knocking out a paving run on the job less time, less traffic control and the like. So some substantial changes to be made in the asphalt thickness space. Not so much in cemented materials. In fact, not at all really. When we look at cemented materials and lean mix concrete, the axle strain method left to its own devices would have resulted in a general decrease in thicknesses. Um, and those thickness, the thickness decrease would vary with traffic distribution, and it would be greater for the distributions in which tandems and tries were, were causing more fatigue damage. However, um, there was a prevailing unanimous view um, amongst the, the expert gurus that whilst they agreed the axle strain method provided a better method for um, assessing fatigue damage of cemented materials, there wasn't enough evidence, or any evidence really, um, to support that a general reduction in cemented material thickness um, was possible. In other words, the, material, the, the pavements they'd had which had not performed that brilliantly, they were um, largely of the view was when the thickness that had been required wasn't entirely placed. So they thought a reduction in thickness of the cemented material would result in a reduction in performance. The converse to that is that they obviously thought in the asphalt space that that reduction in thickness was acceptable. So that really quickly is all of the changes um, in part two. Structural uh, consideration of the support of lime stabilized clay subgrades, improved direct measurement methods for cemented materials, enabling you to come up with new and innovative materials using new or waste products um, and gain the confidence to use them in the design process. The separation of lean mix concrete out as a separate material type, but essentially the same design, uh, well, the same materials characterization process as used before. A asphalt material, the significant addition of um, the direct measure of um, modulus and an improved fatigue test method as well as enabled direct measurement to creep more into the process there, particularly flexural performance or flexural modulus and flexural performance of the material rather than indirect tensile. We've added the flexural. And the most significant change is in the design traffic space with the removal of standard axle repetitions and the introduction of the axle strain method. As I said earlier, some minor changes in the joint detailing diagrams in chapter nine for rigid pavements to bring it in line with um, state-of-the-art practice. Right, Guide to Pavement Technology Part 4C. I promised you one slide, this is not it. This is it, except this is not it too. Um, different team, Andrew Papacostas still ran the process. I project led it, which doesn't mean much because actually the majority of the work was done by George Robbie of Head to Head International and, and I just floated on top of George's expertise. Um, the same sort of review process. The key changes to the guide are all of the diagram, or most of the diagrams have been updated and made consistent with um, current roads and maritime services practice. Um, 
additional reference has been made to the use of geopolymer cements, which you know be exciting to see come into the rigid pavement space. Probably the most significant change, other than the diagrams, is all of the references to test methods, to Australian standards, to ISO standards, have been updated to reflect um, current documents rather than the, the dated ones that were there before. So in the whole, on the whole, a, a minor technical changes, but bringing the document um, up to date in terms of currency and, and effectiveness. And with that, I'll stop and let you start. Um, I'm open to questions, Elise. Thank you for presenting, Michael. Lots of content and detailed information that you covered. So we've received a lot of interesting questions. Thank you for those for sending those through. So first question is, are we correct that the new method is effectively ignoring strain contribution from adjacent axles for multi-axle groups when assessing the bound layer? Previously, this was implicitly allowed for by the equivalent axle group loads between ESA and tandem and tri-axle groups. It's, yeah, I, I know where the question's coming from. Um, we, we kind of implicitly didn't, kind of implicitly didn't before. Um, yeah, the new method for the for for structural design purposes considers that the axles are acting independently to each other rather than um, superimposed. And interestingly, if we had superimposed the strain responses, the thickness reductions would have been greater which is an odd outcome. People are probably shaking their heads and going, how does that work? And it, it's largely because the strain, we, we traditionally assess strain in two directions, longitudinal direction, so parallel to the direction of travel and transverse across the pavement. The predominant strain that affects the majority of heavy duty asphalt pavement designs is the longitudinal one. And if you superimpose adjacent axle pulses from a longitudinal strain, you will reduce the magnitude of the pulse. I know that sounds odd, but there's some science to it. Have a look in one of the supporting documents that's referred to in the guide and you can um, uh, believe me, trust me. Okay, thanks for clarifying that one. I had a question from David in relation to slide number 22. So the question is, is it, re is it recommended to slake quick lime prior to stabilizing clay subgrades, which can be adequately pulverized? I'm going to take that question on notice because I recognise a trap when I see one. Um, I'm going to take that one on notice. I, I couldn't give you an off-the-cuff answer for a couple of reasons, not least of which is it's not my area of expertise. Okay, we'll take that one on offline and then we'll answer that um, offline and respond to David. So another question in relation to slide 30. So the question is, the problem in using lab characteristics of an unknown material is knowing the construction variability and the impact that variability has on the design value. The designer may adopt numbers that require the material to be constructed to a precision which is not achievable. How do we reconcile this misfit? Well, that's, I agree, um, that, but that concept has been there since day one. That's, that's, that's the challenge of a designer. That's why we earn the big bucks. We don't. Um, I agree. It's safe to say that the lab to field shift factors that have been developed here take into account the wide range of material properties that you will get in the field. And in fact, for example, in the in the cemented material modulus space, we're actually taking a 20 percentile value of the lab modulus. So we're saying 80% of the material may well have a modulus higher than this. We're taking the 20% a really low value to reflect the fact that we get a wide range of performance when we place in the field. And also to recognise that it's those low ends, the, the, the lowest emphasis ones, which is probably going to cause the problems that requires future maintenance. So that really is the thing that's going to define the performance of the material. So yeah, I agree. Um, you are having a stab, but our lab to field in this our lab to field adjustment in this factor is trying to take into account, um, based on data, uh, what the range of, of likely field outcomes is compared to the lab. Okay, thanks for clarifying that one. In relation to slide thirty-seven, fifty slides down. So does the does the size of the asphalt beam affect the flexural modulus value measured in a lab test? The safe answer to that is 
yes. The backup to that is how much. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I do know that in the guide we are referring to the Austrode's test methods and they are specific in the size of the specimen and have tolerances on variations of that size and they're not very large tolerances so that we are sure, sure we're comparing apples with apples. But um, yes, if you dramatically change the, 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 the nature of the beam, then yeah, you will be slowly um, deviating away from ideal beam theory um, and changing the, the nature of the, the test results you get. But if you follow the Austroids process and you're within the tolerances that you have on the, the specimen sizes there, then you should be able to make fair comparisons. Okay. Another question in relation to this is, are we looking at a fatigue jig capable of accommodating a beam with a larger cross-section? The current unit only accommodates beam with width and depth of 63 millimetres, which is for a 20 millimetre mix, is only three times yep. the maximum stone size. So measured cycles may be misleading or field performance. So can you kind of provide any comments on this one? I know that you can get um, equipment that is larger. I know that our own labs here um, have ordered a couple um, of, of beam apparatus that are larger. That's more with a view to research work in the famed bitumen space um, rather than in the asphalt space. But you can get additional equipment. Um, I think it's a conversation we can have offline in the, in the finer details if people want to be te testing large aggregate sizes um, in these sorts of smaller test rigs in the lab. Again, not my prime area of expertise and I wouldn't like to mislead people with an off-the-cuff answer. Okay, thanks Michael. Another question is, is a decrease in viscosity being observed in bitumen stabilised pavement beams under high traffic loadings in the beam testing? That's a really awesome question for a totally different webinar. <laughs> okay. I, 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 it's going to take me some time to even comprehend that question. Again, best done offline, I think, and possibly yep, yep. with some support. Excellent. <laughs> uh, so another question in relation to slide 42. So are there any projects? That's 42. Okay. So are there any projects planned to refine our knowledge of the asphalt endurance limit? Um, in the Austroad space, there isn't a current live project planned to do it. Um, there is some background scoping work that's been done. There are some proposals floating around the space, I believe, but I am not aware of a lot. Well, I know there is no live project in the Austroad space looking at that limit. There is a ton of research work that's been conducted around the world um, to varying degrees in, in research institutes and universities and the like. Not a huge amount of adoption of that in actual practice. Uh, some, but not a huge amount. But there is some, there's a lot of research work, but it hasn't come down to a, um, a single method that we think can work easily in the Australian context robustly. We think it's needed, but um, it hasn't happened yet. Okay. So question in relation to asphalt fatigue. So it looks like only bottom-up fatigue is considered. Truck tyres are changing and most recent research shows that cracking starts right below the surface as a shear failure and it is then spread to the bottom layers, top-down cracking. How is this taken into account for by the new guide? Well, to, to varying degrees. Um, yes, we are still, the, the thickness design process is still you know, relating performance to a strain at the bottom of an asphalt layer. So it is considering that bottom up cracking, which does occur in the field. It's, it, it does occur. It's not the only thing that occurs, but it does occur. Um, the top down cracking, well, I would say, I suppose, in the, in, in the very heavy duty end of the scale, the use of the traffic, um, design traffic cap that says beyond this certain level of, of ESAs for my temperature regime, don't add any more design traffic because you're going to end up with a pavement that's too thick it was unnecessarily thick. That's how we've kind of introduced that concept of a, of a heavy duty perpetual pavement where the only wear that is being done to the pavement is surface distress rather than a bottom up crack developing. So mm -hmm. that's how it's handled in an interim process in, in the guide rather than um, in the previous guide where we didn't consider it at all beyond a couple of words. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks for that, Michael. And one last question is, why does the guide not include the use of geogrid reinforced sub-base in the pavement design method? 
because we don't have a robust means of doing so yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the guide does not contain many things that we would like it to contain, but mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a document that's continually evolving. Um, it's fair to say that since 1979, it's evolved a great, great deal, and I would like to think that it will continue to evolve, to, to evolve as more and more research, development work, practitioner feedback, all influences us to say, yes, we can now take the next step. We're now confident that we can um, incorporate a new concept in a reliable and easy to use way. It's an evolving target and I think we should be happy with it evolving. Mm. All right. Thanks for answering all these questions. So at the moment, we'll have to close this session due to time, but we apologize to the audience if we weren't able to get to your question. But what we'll do is we'll collate the questions and prepare a Q&A document and we'll email you once it's available as we'll put it up online. But you can get in contact with us if you do have any inquiries in the future. So I'd like to let you know of the upcoming webinars that we have. We have a session in a few weeks time about local road access for high productivity freight vehicles. That's on the 27th of March. We then have another session on the 1st of May on the topic geopolymer concrete and its applications. So we'll have two presenters in this session outlining the findings of a four-year project covering three different OSRA reports as well as using big roads as a case study. So if you know of anyone who may be interested in these webinars, please let them know and you can go on our website for more information and to register. But as we close up, I'd like to thank you all for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this webinar. We would like your feedback on this webinar, so please fill out a quick survey, which will pop up shortly. And lastly, thank you, Michael, for presenting and answering the questions. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day, everyone.